and objective faith. And let's talk about objective faith first. That is the faith that is under attack. What is the faith, objective faith? It is the complete body of doctrine of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is all the doctrine that is from Him. That is the faith. It is teaching. When we read John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, there's some really good information there about the faith. What we read there, when we read verse 12, Jesus says, I have more things to say to you, apostles. He's speaking to the apostles. I have more things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. But, then he gets to verse 13, but I'm sending someone. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all the truth. And then when you read verse 14, it even gets more specific. He says that the Holy Spirit will glorify him. How? He will take what belongs to him and declare it to the apostles. What is he going to declare? All the truth. And so that is all the teaching. You see, all the doctrine of Jesus Christ is not just what proceeded from his mouth in the gospel accounts, but it is all the teaching from Matthew through Revelation under the New Covenant. And it is that, that, that which the Holy Spirit guided the apostles in. The Holy Spirit influenced them. He taught them. The apostles then taught people. The church was born, and the church was devoted to that teaching. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And so then the apostle, that teaching continued to be taught, and then it was written down preserved so that we also could read it and know it. And it is that word that will judge us at the last day. John chapter 12, verse 48. That word will be our judge. You see, there, there shouldn't be surprises as to what we're going to be judged by. Where, oh, I didn't know that. God left it. It's here. We have it in the scripture. This is the standard the Bible. So that's objective faith. So what is subjective faith? That's our own personal faith. That is our conviction to that doctrine. So when we read Romans 10, 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Objective faith is the word of Christ. And subjective faith is the, is the faith that comes from it. Maybe to put it this way, subjective faith is generated from objective faith. Are you understanding that? So our own conviction, it is generated, it comes from the faith, the doctrine, the teaching. So here's some scriptural evidence for that. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Here it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. We learn a very valuable lesson in this text. Do you know what it is? It's that the faith is something to be obeyed. The faith is something to be obeyed. It's teaching. We obey the teaching. So they were obedient to the faith. Here's another scripture. Very, very good one. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read verse 1. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 6. And I put it up here because I want us to see the text very, very clearly as we talk about it. 
verse 1. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, times some will depart from the faith. Okay? How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And then from verses 2 through 5, he describes that teaching. He also describes, too, the truth. He describes both the false doctrine and the true doctrine in those verses. Then when we drop down to verse 6, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, what things? If you put forth both the false teaching and the true teaching, show them. Show them what's false. Show them what's true. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. There's that phrase again, the faith. And of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, what do we learn from verse 1? Departing from the faith is departing from the teaching of Christ. Because, he says, some will depart from the faith, and then, where are they going? They're going to, to the teachings of demons. Things that are not taught in Scripture. Anything that's not taught in Scripture is not of God. And because it's not of God, where did it come from? Who's, who's trying to distort it? Who is trying to provide a false message? It's not God. It's Satan. So departing from the faith is departing from the teaching of Christ. And we learn from verse 6 that the faith is made up of words. Again, we get that reinforcement that the faith here, objective faith, is teaching. It's doctrine. And then Paul uses a couple of phrases here in verse 6. Number one, words of the faith and also good doctrine. And you know what? These two phrases really refer to the same thing. They refer to the scripture. But what these two phrases do, like we may ask the question, why did Paul use two phrases if he means the same thing? He's giving us a little bit of information, a little bit more detail about the blessing of this word. So what does words of the faith mean? These are words that produce the subjective faith in us. Romans 10, 17. So that's why he uses words of the faith because it's connected to our faith, our personal conviction to the words. What about good doctrine? Well, some translations use the word sound doctrine. And what does sound means? mean? It means healthy, healthy doctrine. It's good for you. Sound doctrine or healthy doctrine yields a person who is spiritually healthy. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's like eating good food. It's like, well, a really healthy person will eat really healthily like your vegetables, which is something I'm not really very familiar with. But, <laughs> but at the same time, this spiritually, this is our healthy food. This is, this is the sustenance that we need for our spiritual growth and ultimately for eternal life. And Paul also in verse 6 uses the word trained, trained in the words of the faith. Another translation uses the word nourished. That's a good word. We are nourished in the words of the faith. It is our food. And so by that good nourishment, we can be healthy. 
because it's good, healthy doctrine. Now here's a question. If the Bible is nourishment for us, but we fail to study the Bible, are we malnourished? Mm -hmm. See, can you survive on one meal a week? Now, of course, if you're, if you're fasting, maybe you'll fast for a little while, but not on a regular basis. Can you be truly sustained on one meal a week? So spiritually, can you be sustained if you're only getting your Bible from 11 to 12? Now it's after 12, but for a few minutes after 12, um, can you get your sustenance just by being here on a Sunday morning? And that's all you get where your Bible at home is sitting on a mantle or sitting in, in a desk and it never is opened. We need to read that. We need to study this. So this is our nourishment. This is our sustenance. If we don't, we're malnourished spiritually. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 talks about this. Like newborn infants long for this spiritual milk, that by it, by that spiritual milk, you may grow up into salvation. Have you ever heard a baby when it's hungry? Oh boy. Baby is hungry. It's crying its eyes out. Maybe it's even screaming. You know that a baby, when it's hungry, it, it wants to be fed, and it will let you know. You may find this a little bit of a funny question, but when was the last time maybe you cried or screamed because you, you weren't able to read the Word of God? Hmm. <laughs> Interesting thought, isn't it? <laughs> but we... See, th there's a comparison here. There's a comparison. We need to be, be like newborn infants when it comes to wanting this. As a newborn infant wants its milk, we need to want this, the nourishment for our souls, that we may grow up into salvation. So we must long for the word of God. Now finally, you may have wondered, wow, it's taking a long time to get to the title page. Okay, now we're here. Here's our scripture reading, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And our brother Arthur will read this for us. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, he's going to read for us verses 1 to 6 and then skip down in the same chapter and read verses 19 through 22. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. We'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 8, page 230 in our pulpit Bibles. I shall read. When Samuel became old, he made the sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the other of his second, Abijah, and there were judges in Bathsheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after, after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now I appoint for us a king to judge like all nations." But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give, give us a king to judge, to judge us. And Samuel prayed to, to the Lord. Reading from verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we shall be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all those words from the people, he re repeated them in the ears 
of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men, Go to every man to his city. And thank you for that reading. That sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Uh, verse 5 Behold, you are old. <laughs> that phrase just always, uh, I get a kick out of that. Um, but what we see here in this text, these people are fed up. They are fed up. And the Samuel sons, they don't walk in his ways. They're corrupt. And they want something different. And so they're looking beyond themselves now. Behold, we want a king. So today's lesson, we're basically calling it the pulling away from God. They are going in a different direction. They want to pull away from what God established and do something on their own. What we see here are diverted eyes. Israel had come to a point where their eyes moved outside the nation, outside God's plan, beyond their nation, away from God. Among the nations of their day, you know what, Israel, their setup was really unique. The creator of, of heaven and earth was their king. No other nation could say that. Also, Israel had no royal palace on earth like all the other nations around them, nor a capital, at least in a national sense. They did have a central place of worship. You know where that was during this time, right? Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle was. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was where the sacrifices were done. So the center of worship was at Shiloh. If, there was, if they had a city that was as close to a capital city as you can get, it would be Shiloh. But in terms of how it was compared to other nations, they were unique in this way. And God raised up judges during this period of time when his people needed saving. Of course, that was due to their disobedience. But Judges chapter 2, verse 16 talks about that. God would raise up judges. So this was the system God set up. This was his design. And it was unique in the world. No other nation had this. But you see, because of human failure, the people became disenchanted with this system. We already read that his sons, Samuels, did not walk in his ways. And so because of that failure, they wanted something different. They wanted to change it. And rather than looking to God and asking him, God, do you have a solution for this? They, they said, what are our neighbors doing? What are our neighbors doing? Maybe, let's look there, let's see. So they turned away from God's pattern, wanting to follow the pattern of people who did not belong to God. Do you see the um, application that perhaps we could make here? Let's talk about Christ's church today, because we can be guilty of this also. In Matthew 16, 18 and 19, we know the church is not a human institution, yes? We didn't come up with it. I didn't come up with it. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. It is his church, Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so it's his. And therefore, because it's his, 
Jesus determines its design. He's the designer. But when people fail in the church, we get discouraged, don't we? And isn't this a reality? Won't people fail in the church? Yeah, we're people. People will make mistakes. People will fail. You know, people can become disenchanted with their preacher. You know, they just, they're not enjoying the sermons or they don't like the direction of the sermons. Maybe they're disenchanted with the, with the leadership in the direction of the church, where they're going. Maybe they're disenchanted with just the overall people thinking, oh man, so many people, they don't practice what they preach. This, you know, the congregation has hypocrites and, and so on and so forth. And they're, not, they're just frustrated. People get frustrated. They think, the congregation's not doing what I think it should be doing. And so when people get discouraged, they get frustrated. So this is a strong temptation. The temptation is, well, rather than look at this, let's see what others are doing. And so they look beyond Christ's kingdom. Their eyes go somewhere else. And where are they looking? Denominations. They're looking at denominations. And remember, we've studied denominations before in, in, in terms of where the, how they got their start and, and what the whole deal is. It's about that which is separate, that which is different, that which has divided from what Jesus established way back in the first century. And so through divisions, through, through differences, these things came into be. But our plea is we need to go back to the first century, try to be the church that we read in the New Testament. That's what, that's what our plea is. Follow the New Testament pattern. So, but the temptation is to look elsewhere. Brothers, are, brothers and sisters, I, I put this bold because I want us to understand this. We're spending too much time looking at what our neighbors are doing when it comes to spiritual things. We're spending way too much time looking at our neighbors. And when we're looking at them, we're looking at patterns, aren't we? We're looking for patterns. What kind of patterns are we looking for? We're guilty of looking for patterns of worship. Because aren't their patterns different from ours? There's some services that, wow, they look, they look exciting, don't they? It's like a concert. They have all these instruments and they have it's big production values they have choirs and all and, and and bands and all sorts of things we see that in the world with it hey we can bring people into the church by that means that that looks exciting that might appeal to people also we look for patterns in church organization how they're structured maybe we we start thinking oh, hey we should structure ourselves that way or even their evangelism methods. We see what they're doing and say, hey, that looks pretty good. But some of those evangelism methods might change the church organization and make it different. And of course, fellowship openness, where basically anything goes. As long as you believe in Jesus, you're good. And so sometimes we're looking in their direction and we're looking at their patterns. But what is our true pattern, brothers and sisters? Behold the pattern. It is the Holy Scripture. This is our pattern. We want pattern for worship. This is where we go. Pattern for church organization. This is where we go.
We need book, chapter, and verse for the things that we do, for the things that we practice. We need to beware of false teachers. In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You see, false prophets appear to be godly. They don't announce themselves as wolves. They announce themselves as sheep. And so therefore, they also work secretly because the wolf has a sheep's skin over him and so what he's doing is in secret. And this is what Peter talks about in 2 Peter 2.1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will what? Secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now what, what are heresies? They are self-willed opinion, our man's opinion, my opinion, your opinion. And what we do is we substitute our opinion. We, we substitute God's will for our opinion. So we're doing a substitution for God's truth. That's a heresy. And Peter says, make no mistake, these are destructive. Self-willed opinion is destructive. So make no mistake, it does make a difference what we believe and what we practice. Oh, it makes a difference. What we believe and the things that we do. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writing to Timothy, he said, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred teachings. The teachings are sacred. Why? They're from God. Teachings are from God. They're sacred. Which are able to make you wise for salvation. There's wisdom in those words. Through faith in Christ Jesus. Now let's talk about for a moment the nature of truth. When many ask the question, what is truth? Don't we hear that? What do people normally say? Oh, truth is just subjective. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth in this world. And they behave perhaps similarly to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was talking to Jesus, and, and he, there were, Jesus was talking about truth, he would testify to the truth. And so Jesus was talking about truth, and then Pilate just says, what is truth? What is it? And then it, it seems like from the text, he doesn't wait for an answer. He just, he, he leaves Jesus. So in a way, our society kind of does the same thing. They ask the question, what is truth? But rather than waiting for an answer, or rather than looking in here for an answer, they walk away, just like Pilate did because they think the question is unanswerable. But the Bible does answer that question. John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Truth is valuable. Proverbs 23, 23, Buy the truth, don't sell it. Do you remember the parable Jesus uh, told about the man who found treasure in a field? And he wanted that treasure. He saw the value of that treasure. And so he sold everything he had so that he could purchase the field and so he could have that treasure. And of course, in context, that treasure was the, the, about the kingdom, the preciousness of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom. And so we need to buy the truth, don't sell it. Truth is also narrow. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7. 
Matthew 7. I want to read verses 13 and 14 to begin with. Jesus says, this is Sermon on the Mount, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Drop down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is the one who will enter the kingdom. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now there's going to be some surprises on judgment day. And I'll just confess right now, I don't want to be one of the ones who's surprised. So what do I do then about trying not to be surprised? Remember, this, this, it's these words that are going to judge me. These words will judge me. And in fact, that's our next scripture, John 12, 48. We referred to this a moment ago. But Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And then he explains it. He says, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And that's all the words of the New Testament. So how does our belief, what, we, what we're convicted of, and what we practice, both individually and also as a body, together, as we practice, how does it measure up to the truth? The Bible is our measure. And so we use the Bible as the measuring rod for what we believe and practice. And so that standard will not be patterns found outside Christ's church. So we need to stop looking outside because what we're going to be judged by is inside. All doctrine entrusted to the church. Jude 3. Let's just turn for a moment to Jude 3. Jude verse 3. And I'll be wrapping up shortly. Jude verse 3. The scripture reads, and I better put my eyes on, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, I really like how the, uh, there's a word that the New International Version uses. It uses the word entrusted. Both delivered and entrusted carry the meaning of the Greek word very, very well. Yes, the, the, the faith was delivered to the saints, which is the church. The faith was delivered to the church, but not only just delivered, but when we received it, it was given to us in trust, accountability, responsibility to that word, both to proclaim it, but also to live it. And so, yes, entrusted is an excellent word to use there. And some examples of that doctrine that we have been entrusted with as the church, the plan of salvation, just to enter the kingdom. And Satan has done an amazing job of twisting that. And so there are so many people who think they're in the kingdom and they're not. And so it's a sad, sad reality that so many are not part of the kingdom because Satan has done such a good job twisting the message. Also, our evangelistic priority, that we need to be people 
sharing the word. Very, very important. That's the doctrine of the New Testament. Also being Christ-like. We can call that Sermon on the Mount living. You know, sometimes when we talk about doctrine, we might be tempted to think it's like this checklist of very just cold thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And as long as we are able to check it off, we're good. You know what? Holy living, Sermon on the Mount living, that's also doctrine. That's the teaching. We need to live like that. That's not just a checklist. That's the way that we live. Also assembling on the first day of the week, the Lord's Supper. It's amazing to me that sometimes we can hear messages about the Lord's Supper from out there, and we think, what is going on? We hear something strange. We need just to remember what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 11:26, that every time that we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We might hear, well, it's just, it's, it's a Sunday thing. We might hear that it's, it's a victory thing and that it has nothing to do with the death. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But also, it says until he comes. And so there's also that bit of we also remember the resurrected Lord because he didn't just stay dead. He's coming again. And so what I like to say when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the message of the Lord's Supper is the entire gospel. It's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. We are converted by the gospel. We live the gospel. We preach the gospel to save others. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are also proclaiming the gospel and participating in it. It is the whole gospel. There's nothing left out of it. It is, it is the gospel. Singing praises to God, as we've been doing. Singing praises with our voices. Seeking biblical organizational structure and women's role in the church. And there's so many more, so, so many more. But that's, that's a... This is a glimpse of, of the doctrine that has been entrusted to the church. And I put these up here because more and more of even our brethren in the church want to look outside for these teachings. Rather than look inside, they want to see what our neighbors are doing. So remember, as we close, the church of Christ doesn't teach anything. Now, I'm borrowing this, okay? I heard another preacher say this, and I really liked it, so I'm borrowing it, so here we go. Um, the Church of Christ doesn't actually teach anything. Rather, the Church of Christ upholds the teaching of Scripture. Amen. You understand that, right? You see, this is the teaching. God is the teacher. The words instruct us. What do we do? What is our responsibility? We uphold this. The teaching does not originate with us, but rather we uphold the teaching of Scripture. So here's today's exhortation. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? This is an important question. Are you looking here in the Bible? Or are you looking out there? Where are your eyes? Because, you know, frustration can be a powerful thing. Because it's very often it's frustration that can lead us to start going somewhere else and looking somewhere else. So out there, it is there where the, the faith is under attack. That's where the pressure's coming in, from out there. 
And just to be clear, it is the teaching of demons that is attacking Scripture. You see, there's many people out there, there are many wonderful people out there, but they have been fooled by the teaching. And we just have to, we, in a very loving way, we, we need to just show them, have you considered what the Bible says? Maybe there's a topic they're interested in. Just show them, oh, hey, that's a great topic. Why don't we go to the scripture and see what it says? Because many, many people are looking. Let, if they're looking, let's show them. Open up the Bible. Study with them. Teach them. And let's not have anything to do with the teaching of demons. I pray that this lesson will be an encouragement to all of us and to keep us in the word of God. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you're not part of God's kingdom, what are you waiting for? Because Jesus calls. He loves you. He wants you to be part of his family. What do you need to be do to be saved? What does the Bible say you must do to be saved? You've heard the word. You've heard the gospel. What is our response to the gospel? We need to believe it in faith. Just as they did in Acts chapter 2, the people, they were convicted. They were cut to the heart. And they repented. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent. We also need to confess Jesus as both our Lord and our Savior. He's not just Savior, but He's also Lord. He needs to be our Master. He needs to be our authority in all that we do. And then, finally, we need to be baptized. Immersed in water, buried with our Lord in baptism. Being united with Him in His death so that we can then be united with him in his resurrection. If we're subject to this invitation today, won't you come now? While together we stand and we sing.